Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to, and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. And welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Thursday, the 30th of November. I'm Callum McDonald, and here's Kirsty Buchanan. Hello, Kirsty. Hi. We are assembled in the evening of Thursday, the 30th, St. Andrew's Day, of course. Happy St. Andrew's Day to you. Um, we are gathered here to, well, basically, we're recording in the evening because I was covering the Matt Hancock appearance at the COVID inquiry. Part one, well, part one for this module. He's been there before. He's going to be there Friday morning as well. But I was reporting that for Times Radio through the day, um, which was exhilarating, as I'm sure you can imagine. To be fair, there were a few interesting things that Matt Hancock said at the COVID inquiry. So we will reflect on him and on those a little bit later on on the podcast. But we want to start by thinking thinking about Alistair Darling, um, who was Chancellor. Uh, He was a Labour politician. 
He really steered the UK through the financial crisis back in 2008, and a family spokesperson announced today that he has died aged 70. He was in Cabinet for 13 years, um, serving under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And yeah, I think the banking crisis, Kirsty, is definitely up there as perhaps one of his most memorable spells in office. Yeah, um, I was saddened to hear of his death, actually. He was... Um, a lot like the late James Brokenshire, he's what I would call a kind of true public servant. He mm. he worked calmly, diligently. He had a very wry sense of humour, uh, and he wasn't a you know a showy person. Uh, and when you think about the financial crash of two thousand and eight, you think about Gordon Brown. Mm. You don't think about Alistair Darling, who was actually the Chancellor, but made some fundamental decisions uh, to try and prevent the run on the banks. So, um, and I think that's because he just, he wasn't, you know, a showy man. He did his job um, and he did it with, you know, like I say, great calmness, uh, great diligence, and he was a very intelligent man. And, um, you know, I, you often hear sort of like, if if the fall of the Berlin Wall was the kind of pivotal moment, if you like, for uh, Gen X, then... Mm the collapse of the banks, the 2008 economic crisis was a sort of defining moment of the millennials. And it's one of the reasons why uh, uh, we've had this sort of increasing distrust of uh, the more rapacious elements, I think, if you like, of, of capitalism. But but what fundamentally happened, uh, it started actually in 2008 and there was a subprime mortgage crisis in America which drifted over to... Uh, a bank called Northern Rock, which was heavily exposed um, and had a liquidity crisis. Now, uh, in certain circumstances, in extreme circumstances, rather than the Bank of England being responsible for economic emergencies, it could fall to the Chancellor. And this is one of those uh, occasions. And this was the first, just to put this in context, it was the first run on the bank since 1860. Uh, and in what was at the time a just an unprecedented intervention, uh, he uh, guaranteed twenty billion pounds worth of uh, kind of taxpayers' money to Northern Rocks to to try and kind of cauterize that that run on the banks. And he was mm. heavily criticised at the time for doing it, for giving that much uh, public money to uh, a private company. I mean, <laughs> you laugh to think about it now when you think about the intervention that you know, for arguments like Liz Trust did over uh, the energy price guarantee. But uh, but at the time, it was a huge deal, and he came under. Uh, a lot of fire, but you know, I think it was uh, the right thing to do. I think it helped steady the ship, um, and it was, you know, when we talk about, you know, we, when we think about people like Boris Johnson in COVID, for argument's sake, we think about the wrong man for the wrong crisis. Someone like Alistair Darling was a hundred percent the right man for that sort of crisis. Mm. Very level-headed, very calm, very methodical. Um, uh, and made the right call on that. He's also um, obviously uh, equally well known for leading the campaign for uh, ag ag against independence in the Scottish referendum. Yeah, the Better um, Together campaign. Better Together. The Better Together campaign. And I was reading up, obviously, on Alistair Darling today, and of course I'd forgotten he was actually born in London. Mm. Born in London and educated in... Surrey before he went to university in Scotland. Um, and you always think of him as kind of quintessentially, I always thought of him as quintessentially Scottish, you know, and it is that, you know, it, again, one of the, you know, the right man for the, for the role, if you like, uh, better together. Um, and he was 
obviously, you know, pivotal in making sure that the union, uh, you know, remained intact. So those are the two big things. For transport nerds like me, he also had a very significant time as uh, Secretary of State for Transport. He was, um, uh, when he was put into the job after buyers, it was after the collapse uh, of the... um, uh, I forgot what it's called now, but, but basically the, the organisation that ran the infrastructure. That, and he, uh, Darling, helped set up Network Rail. He also um, uh, was the person who was responsible for green lighting the Crossrail project. So um, big kind of political mm. you know, moves for, for transport nerds there too. <laughs> um, and he was a thoroughly nice bloke. I mean, I, uh, I at the time that he was Chancellor, I... I worked at the Sunday Express, which wasn't known for being the greatest fans of Gordon Brown's government, to put it mildly. Uh, he was always unfailingly um, polite to me, uh, even though my paper never returned the courtesy. And I was relaying a story on X earlier on about um, every Christmas, the lobby journalist kids are invited to Downing Street for a party. Uh, and it was ho- one year it was hosted by Alistair Darling and his wife. And my kids were very young in their defence, um, and they were not having a good evening, let's put it that way. I think they got a little overexcited by everything. Um, and uh, they were both quite young, and they were behaving very badly. And a, and a colleague of mine uh, uh, said to me, you know, I just didn't mean to be as unpleasant as it as it came out. But she said to me, "Your children are very cute, but they're very badly behaved, aren't they?" Oh no! Um, and I just kind of wanted the ground to open up and swallow me oh, whole. Gosh! Uh, and uh, Alistair Darling had obviously overheard this. Um, and after my colleague sort of walked away, he came over to me and he said, all your children are an absolute delight. Hmm. And I thought, well, they're not really at the moment, are they? But, you know, <laughs> but thank you for the spin. I appreciate it. Um, and I was really grateful for that because I just, I was so mortified that evening. Gosh. And he was so sweet about it. I think, I think my oldest might have even given um, his wife a bit of a slap when she oh, no. went down to talk to him. Uh, yeah, awkward. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, like I say, in his defence, he was about three at the time. Oh, um, totally. And, uh, you know, three-year-olds aren't noted for being reliable in, you know, in good company. Uh, mm. But I was very grateful for him being, you know, very kind at one of the more embarrassing moments of my <laughs> of my life. Um, that- and it is a, you know, it, it is a great shock and I'm very sad for his, for his family and his friends. Yeah, me too. Absolutely same. Uh, some of whom I know. I don't. I don't know him. I did interview him on um, student radio. Uh, in fact, almost exactly ten years ago, on the day the white paper on Scottish independence was published by the SNP, and it was on student radio. And I think you know we also spoke to Alex Salmon that day, and I think Nicola Sturgeon actually did us a turn as well. But I felt like for these sorts of very high profile politicians, including Alistair Darling, to take the time to speak to a student radio station when his attention and, uh, you know, comment was required and demanded from, you know, every media outlet in the known universe on that day, for him to take a few minutes and to speak to us was was really remarkable. I found a picture of it earlier today. And um, yeah, he was perfectly willing to sort of have his thoughts aired. And I do think he actually sort of sculpted that for a student audience as well. He's very clearly a very intelligent man and a very steady thinker and knew what he was doing. And I want to mention this actually from one of my um, uni peers, Alistair Grant, who is now um, at The Scotsman uh, as their political editor, I believe. Um, He's got this from Alistair Darling's memoir, Back from the Brink. 
This is the quote. I don't believe in panicking until it's absolutely necessary, but I came close to considering it on Tuesday, October the 7th, 2008. <laughs> um, and that was, of course, as the kind of the financial crisis unfolded. That day was when Sir Tom McKillop, who was at the time the chairman of the Royal Bank of Scotland, phoned him to tell him the money was about to run out. So reports Alistair. Uh, and this uh, story continues. I had to go to one of those meetings of European finance ministers. I was asked to come out and take a call from the then chairman of RBS, who said the bank was hemorrhaging money. And remember, this was a bank that not only was the biggest in the world, it was about the same size as the entire UK economy. It was that wow. big. Um, and so that's the situation that Alistair Darling had to then contend with as he served under former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. And, uh, you know, Gordon Brown has, has sort of led the messages of condolence today, really, saying he's deeply saddened by the news. He said, Alistair will be remembered as a statesman of unimpeachable integrity, whose life was defined by a strong sense of social justice and who gained a global reputation for the assured competence and the exercise of considered judgment he brought to the handling of economic affairs. Um, so that was Gordon Brown, I mean, one of many paying tribute today. I think my other thing, go on, Kirsty. sorry, before I can go on. No, I was about to say, and it's notable too that um, uh, his conservative contemporaries, both David Cameron yeah. and George Osborne, have paid glowing tribute to him. I mean... You know, in an increasingly, uh, in a world of increasingly polarised and sometimes quite aggressive debate, uh, that sense of decency, of mm. professional courtesy across the political divide is one of those things that Alistair Darling was known for and one of the things yeah. that uh, both Cameron and Osborne have, have paid tribute to. A decent man, a decent, hardworking, diligent, public servant. Yeah. Uh, we don't have enough of them in politics anymore uh, and by their very nature they are quite often unsung heroes mm. and uh, as I said like whilst Gordon Brown got quite a lot of justified credit for his handling you know the, the, the man with his hand on the tiller at Treasury was Alistair Darling and mm. uh, you know like I said he's, he's the right man for a crisis like that because he's not prone for panic and yeah. you know is an intelligent clear thinker. And I'll add to those opposition voices as well. Mr. Salmond, Alex Salmond, praising his old opponent's tenure. I remember being a researcher on the on the BBC Scotland TV debate between the two of them, uh, Kelvin Grove in Glasgow, in the run-up to the referendum. Um, I mean, it was astonishing. I remember standing... I, I escaped the role I was given, which was boring and tedious and somewhere else in the building. <laughs> and I ran up to the side of the stage so I could watch this moment in history as the two of them kind of went head-to-head, -head, really. And Salmond today saying, whatever else... Alistair was feeling behind the scenes. He always came across as being in charge, being calm, knowing what he was doing, and that was absolutely essential to to that moment of crisis, um, which is due to you know speaking about his tenure in the financial crash. I should say when that moment of test came, Alistair passed with flying colours. He said he never had a cross word with Alistair Darling outside the intense televised debates, and I think you know that's kind of what you would. You would hope for intent debate, wouldn't you, on a matter like that? But actually, outside of that forum where that is demanded of you, the consensus is he was just a lovely person, um, mm. and I think that's really quite amazing. There's not many. There's not also not many politicians about whom you you only really talk about their political. Um, achievements or attributes. So we're talking about financial crash and, and the Better Together campaign. Other politicians of nowadays, you would then also add in all the scandals they were involved in or, 
you know, the terrible decisions that they made or the parties they had during COVID lockdowns or the way they crashed the economy or the way they invaded a country, um, you know, years and years ago. And there's so many questions. But you know what I mean? There's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of legacy with politicians that perhaps we've, we don't have with Alistair Darling on the kind of negative side. Yeah, there's not a lot of uh, dark spots on the old CV there, is there? Yeah. And uh, like I say, he, he he reminds me very much of the late James Brokenchild. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, as a comparison. Uh, you know, strong family man, mm. uh, you know, a quiet, diligent, clear, universally admired public servant uh, mm. for whom the word decency is uh, on the top of every, you know, on the tip of everyone's tongue, decency yeah. and integrity. Absolutely. Um yeah, here, here, and so say all of us. Uh, that is Alistair Darling, who it's been announced today died at the age of 70. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations. Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm that The Resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. go on now and talk about Matt Hancock, perhaps in quite a stark contrast, but in an important um, context. He was giving evidence... It's quite a segue when you're talking about decency and integrity to then swerve off to Matt Hancock, right? I know. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it, but I I think you're right. I think just saying it like it is, you know... (laughs) Talking of decency and integrity! (laughs) Yeah. Feel that gear change, listeners. Pump that clutch as we try try and change gear. Apply handbrake as necessary. Um, uh, yeah, so this was Matt Hancock <laughs> up at the COVID inquiry. Again, it has to be said, he, he was at the COVID inquiry previously back in June. Um, 
so yeah, I was, I was, I mean, I watched every single minute of it today and was giving updates on Times Radio. I think the first thing I would, I would pick out probably is his, his lockdown um, considerations today, saying that the UK lockdown kind of three weeks too late. Now, I think with this, and I've been saying this all the way through my reporting, Kirsty, there's a couple of considerations. One, we always have to remember what the COVID inquiry exists to do, which is to learn lessons in case or, you know, for when this happens again. So that's the kind of overarching ambition of all the evidence that it's taking. Then we have to remember that a lot of this is in hindsight and a lot of it is also based on sort of contemporary records and emails and WhatsApp messages, notoriously, and all of that and diaries and all that sort of stuff. But you have to you have to sort of bear in mind where the distinctions are, I think, in what we're hearing. And his three-week lockdown um, thought was, that's in hindsight, that's a retrospective thing. Because even he at the time didn't seem to be pushing for lockdown as early as that. Certainly earlier than we went for but it wasn't as early as three weeks previous. But his suggestion was that it would have had a really dramatic impact had we had we locked down three weeks earlier. Uh, to which I kind of want to say no, Sherlock, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, I, I, was, I was slightly baffled by this. Now, obviously, I, I listened intently to your updates on Times Radio <laughs> all day, uh, not least because I didn't have time to, to, to watch Matt Hancock on the uh, thing... Uh, on the inquiry today, uh, and also because you know you have been named as one of the political commentators of the year, which you were obviously not going to mention. So let me just no, no, crowbar no, no. that into the conversation right now um, from a rival consultancy. So we will not name them, but award-winning political commentator Callum McDonald, uh, it well worth a listen to about your insights on the inquiry. And I'm wondering because obviously you, you'd have seen all Thank the kind of that. lead. Up to this way. bit, um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to get kicking later on. Um, you know, and uh, and you would have seen all the sort of conversation that led up to this. I was utterly baffled by this point mm. uh, and why it was one of the standout points of uh, the day. Because uh, I kind of, what is the point of saying? Well, you know, obviously in hindsight, you know, we could have done this. What we're trying to establish is what went wrong at the time. Now, mm. I, I caught a little bit at the top where um, uh, quite a lot was being made of the fact that the, the book he's published, The Pandemic Diaries, are yeah. not actually diaries. They weren't written contemporaneously. Now, they might have been drawn from contemporaneous yeah. notes, uh, but in its very right, it is a sort of, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, contemporaneous, contemporaneous notes combined with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and I wouldn't have called them diaries uh, for that very reason. And I think that was the point that the inquiry was trying to make yeah. today. And then we get to this point that he says, well, if we'd locked down three weeks earlier, uh, many more lives would have been saved. Well, yes, fine. That's an obvious point to make. But mm. uh, the scientific advice at the time was still... Uh, in essence, following you know what you'd call in shorthand kind of herd immunity, yeah. Um, and straight after he made this point, uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson's former senior advisor, who uh, probably bows to no one in his dislike of of Matt Hancock, was straight out of the stocks to say, well, you know, not only did you not advocate it then, you weren't advocating it when we all changed uh, gear on the 13th and the 14th, and it wasn't till the 15th that you came round to the idea that actually lockdown was the right thing to do. So, yeah. uh, I mean, he, he kind of 
you know, Dom Cummings kind of came straight out of the stocks and, you know, was questioning the veracity yeah. of what Matt Hancock was saying to the inquiry. I mean, he said he was flat out lying in his tweet uh, to claim that he privately pushed for lockdown on the 13th. So that that is not the three weeks earlier, but that is earlier than we ended up locking down. So Cummings was saying, you know, he's flat out lying on that to quote. I think part of it, Kirsty, is interesting what you say there about, you know, with hindsight, what is the point in making in, in saying, you know, we should have locked down sooner? It, I think it was part of a wider attempt by Matt Hancock to convey this feeling, which is not, uh, which, you know, there has been this building narrative around this of a real difficulty in getting a hearing in number 10 and in the structures that were in place that were perhaps preventing people being heard. I think also, though, on that point, by the way, he described a toxic culture in government. Um, But I think also you have to remember um, what else was happening at the time and then put alongside that Matt Hancock saying he was the one trying to wake up Whitehall. That was a phrase he used to the COVID threat. Um, and that basically he was kind of leading the charge, to paraphrase, in terms of a lot of these, what you know we would now know would have been perhaps more sensible or effective, at least, decisions. Now, I saw one take on it saying he's trying to rewrite history. And I think there's an element of that. I also think there's an element of Matt Hancock being something of a lone voice on his own behalf, because the evidence thus far has been building and building into a quite critical... Um, commentary of Matt Hancock's time as health secretary, um, you know, perhaps most famously, um, the suggestion from um, Simon Stevens, who used to run the NHS, saying that Hancock, you know, wanted to be the person who decided who lived and who died, should it get to the point of having to prioritise. Matt Hancock absolutely flat out denying that. He was accused by Helen McNamara, a senior civil servant, of having um, nuclear levels of overconfidence and a lack of honesty. Several people have suggested he might be lying. So Matt Hancock was doing something of a attempt at defending his own reputation in the absence of anyone else who seemingly is willing to do that. And how convincing did you find that? I think I struggled with it because his tone throughout was quite was quite confident. I, w- I wouldn't necessarily use the language that um, Helen McNamara used, but it was quite determined that he had a, in several on several occasions had everyone listened to Matt Hancock, things would have been different, and more than that, things would have been better. And I think that's a bit odd. He has apologised in the past, and I take that. But I think that's a bit strange. I also think Hugo Keith KC, who, by the way, I'm in complete awe of, having watched two full days of evidence and dropped into other bits, for him to stand there for hours on end and meticulously not miss a beat, not get ruffled, not get distracted, be able to put his finger on exactly the quotation that he's looking for at exactly the time he needs it, he was literally waving the book at Matt Hancock. He was waving the pandemic diaries at him today. I think he was quite sceptical of some of Hancock's claims, including on lockdown. He held up the pandemic diaries book and he said, you know, Mr. Hancock, there's no, there's no reference to your suggestion on Friday the 13th that lockdown should be happening. So if this is as accurate a record as you seem to claim it is, why would something of that gravity be left out of this? You know, how can we believe that this happened? And Hancock just says, well, because I remember it happening. And um, and then the next day there were some meetings about it. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure that's enough to convince. Um, so I don't, I struggle a bit. I struggle a bit with Matt Hancock's sort of delivery, I think. And his, the way he portrays, conveys 
his approach, his attitude and his demeanor. I don't, I don't know. It, it maybe is just a bit jarring. And perhaps that is because I can look back with hindsight and realize what was happening. And I just don't think that tone matches what's required at this point. Yeah. And then uh, this element of, so, so again, I think, you know, from, from what I have um, gleaned from your brilliant analysis during the day as one of the <laughs> leading you. political commentators. Stop, stop that immediately. Stop, stop. Um, uh, what I've gathered is, 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 is there, were, there were two, th- one, obviously, you know, there is repeated uh, accusations um, within this inquiry about, you know, the, the veracity of, of of what Matt Hancock says, both both now and you know and at the time, uh, and to some certain extent we know that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there was there was widespread knowledge at the time that Don Cummings had you know was was desperate to get him out and had very uh, low opinion of him uh, and in his ability to convey the truth. Um, but also that there was this sense that. You know, everybody working at the Department of Health was, you know, the whole of the Department of Health was a complete basket case and public health wasn't up to it, and et cetera, which it was interesting to, to see how much Matt Hancock put that back on mm. um, number 10 and its toxic culture. They were, yeah. they were more quick to lay blame uh, and say you're all rubbish, uh, which also, to, to, to be fair, is one of the few things that does have an air of truth when you think about, you know, Don Cummings and the kind of, Willy waving testosterone fueled kind of number ten that Boris Johnson ran. Um, uh, that, that that actually that was more to do with with that kind of toxic culture than it was a reality. And that actually the reality was people were working very hard, uh, and the situation was incredibly fluid and quite mm-hmm. confusing. Did that bit of it seem more uh, convincing to you? Yes. And you know, and in the margins, yes. Why? Why? Because of what we've already heard about number ten. Yes, or? exactly. Because I think it adds it adds an extra dimension to the story that we've already been piecing together, and that is from a multitude of people who are politicians, or who are civil servants, or who are scientific advisors, or chief medical officers, or whatever. But there is actually just a, a breadth of consensus about the chaotic situation at number ten. Yeah. And did you, uh, I don't get a sense there was anything uh, quote-unquote new today. Did you hear anything today that you, you know, that, that came across as new or you didn't know? Not particularly. Did you feel so I, that you knew, you know? No, not not really. I think one of the things, so I, keep, I, I try to frame my own thinking on, on that lessons to be learned. So I think the other thing that is perhaps most salient to listeners as you sort of engage with us just now it was first of all lockdown definitely second of all care homes came up today and this idea of this ring of steel is what it was called and matt hancock really conceding um a point that jonathan van tam made in his evidence which was you know a ring of steel suggests a circle that is unbroken a so, you know a circle that is continuous and he said that's not what we had we had there were you know this was not a ring that was um unbroken and matt hancock conceded that that was in fact true and so that that phrase um was difficult and annoying basically uh, for us and wrong and inappropriate more more than that and then i think on testing so of course there's lots of questions around the policy and the uh, implementation of testing before sort of releasing people 
from uh, hospital wards back into care homes and they would perhaps be carrying COVID with them. And he said, Matt Hancock said, there were not enough tests, which again, we probably all know. But he also said with that lessons learned thing that he thinks the UK's testing infrastructure is still not up to it. So if this was to happen again, we probably wouldn't be particularly better equipped next time. And I think that's quite important. If if we go in with our lessons Mm. learned hat on, that is something that we should take away from today. Um, that actually we might not be that well equipped to deal with some of these similar problems should they arise again in future. Comforting. Um, Exactly. And and look, Matt Hancock doesn't strike me as a man that is kept up in the long dark nights of the soul with, you know, uh, self-reflection and maybe I could have done this better or I should have done this or that. Did you get any sense today of any kind of... Uh, ownership, responsibility that anything that went wrong was his fault as opposed to everybody else's? I think that is an interesting one in that anything that he perhaps considered he should have done better, there was quite frequently the option to point to why he couldn't do it better at the time. So there was a a bit of talk of, oh, perhaps I should have... um, uh, sort of tr- uh, over overridden the, the scientific advice and been more vociferous about that. But, you know, we were still following the scientific advice. And even on lockdown, there was a bit of, you know, in hindsight, we should have done that, but there was kind of resistance from within the, in the political operation. And I think there is validity to that. But I wouldn't say there was any moment where you thought, Matt Hancock, you've put your hands up there. You've, you've sort of conceded that you, something was a mess and that it lands at your desk. Perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm being unfair, but I can't think of any moment where I thought there is real demonstration of contrition on display here. I don't, I don't think we had a moment like that today. And I should say he has apologised in the past. You know, he's said he's profoundly sorry at his previous hearing and all of that. So maybe he's done that in the past, but I, I don't think it was today. Well. I think it probably bears repeating, right? Well, yeah, I do, yeah, fair point. You can't do it too much. Um, I mean, his he, he said his single greatest regret, with hindsight, is that he didn't overrule the advice around asymptomatic transmission. And it's a bit of a kind mm. of like, you know, is that is that a good one to go for? Single greatest do you know regret what? That, with hindsight. That feels- yeah, that feels like when you go to an interview and someone says, what's your greatest flaw? And you say, oh, well, if anything, I work too hard yeah, or, exactly. or some nonsense like that. I'm too much like of a that. perfectionist. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those, isn't it? Exactly. Um, yeah. So I think that was... that uh, was. Also, I'm not sure how he would have overruled scientific no, advice. I'm not sure he would have had the, I mean, the gusto to do that, really. Well, you know, and who are you to overall the scientific well, advice? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I do think, I'll come back to this just by way of sort of conclusion, and it's something we touched on with Alex Thomas a few weeks ago from the Institute for Government, who was brilliant on the COVID inquiry, which was that there is a, a sort of piecing together the evidence we're getting. There is a feeling that we had the wrong people in charge at this moment in time. And if the if the inquiry exists to ask what lessons should we learn for the future, and that is a key lesson, then I don't know what you're supposed to do about that. And Alex made the point on the pod, didn't he, that there's a responsibility on you know everyone from party members who choose their leaders to the electorate who you know vote for people to pr- place more of a priority on competence when when voting for people. But that's, I mean, that's a really difficult thing to kind of see in reality. 
you know, and it's an incompetence, uh, incompetence, Freudian slip, competence in one job is not necessarily competence in another. Now, yeah. Matt Hancock was ably suited to be the, you know, the culture secretary, for argument's sake. Sure. Um, my own personal assessment, without sounding too mean, is he's intellectually not bright enough to run a huge, complex, uh, you know, project management-driven, you know, policy-heavy department like the Department of Health mm. at any time, <laughs> let alone uh, in a crisis. Mm. And this is always kind of the big problem for me with this is, you know, the you know, a lot of this is you know, structural, and you can learn to a point. But a lot of it is also about who's in charge when the music stops. And much as we were talking about Alistair Darling being, you know, the right man at the, you know, for the job at the at the right time. Yeah. You know, not only was Boris Johnson the wrong man to be prime minister in a crisis like this, uh, Matt Hancock was wholly unsuitable for getting to grips with what he needed to get to grips with. And I think, you know, civil servants will put forward. Uh, submissions, which you know, can you know, and try and convey to the best of their ability, incredibly complicated uh, stuff. Particularly at the start, when we were kind of a bit, you know, flying blind. Mm. And I just don't think he had the, you know, intellectual rigor to uh, hold any of this to account or to question it in the right way. Um, and Don Cummings has never, you know, knowingly suffered fools gladly. I think. <laughs> You know, this was not helped by the fact that you know, you know, there were there was quite a lot of intellectual snobbery there. But mm. you know, he he called it out. I think that was his biggest problem with it was that you know, uh, Hancock's a lot of spin um, and not much substance. And like yeah. I say, great for a department that is requires less intellectual rigor. Um, although to be fair to DCMS, it's now got the you know chunkier legislation on its hands, but. Um, but, but for a department like that, you know, policy-heavy departments need you know, people who are really bright running them, really yeah, bright, of because it's really, really complex stuff. Yeah. Um, so there you are, a tale of a tale of two men in quite stark contrast, and you know that's just the way the day unfolded today. Um, I should say that Boris Johnson is up at the COVID inquiry for two whole days next week, Wednesday and Thursday. And Rishi Sunak should be giving evidence as well before the end of the year. So COVID inquiry still got quite a lot of mileage in it, even in the, what, three or four weeks before Christmas. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that for you as well. Um, Kirsty, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Good for to speak your to brilliant, you. insightful commentary. <laughs> this is ridiculous. You have to stop there. I have no idea how <laughs> this is Award-winning Callum MacDonald. Right. I have to. Political have... commentator to watch <laughs> out for. <laughs> Let me just pass comment on this. First of all, thank you. Second of all, I have no idea how this has happened. Apparently, in the, in the little announcement video, they say it's about people have been nominated. We've been nominated. I have no idea who nominated me. I asked my boss. He said, I don't think it was me. Let me ask around. <laughs> so, so, so whoever nominated me, if you're listening to this, thank you very much indeed. I look forward to the champagne reception, which is next week. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Kirsty. Uh, and I look forward to my invite. <laughs> yeah, well, do you know, actually, you say that. Sh you did might... someone say champagne? I'm going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right, good. Let's get out of here. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, share your thoughts anytime, by the way. The email inbox is always open for you. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We love spending time with you on the podcast. Thank you for spending your time with us. And we will talk to you again next week. 